This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. NBR's Dita Deboni has this week returned from a trip to Europe where she says she was surprised that countries across Europe and the UK were consumed with talk of a brain drain, much like New Zealanders. Dita, where did you go and what did you hear? <laughs> I don't want to risk upsetting people and being one of those boars that come back and talk about their trip. I don't travel a lot, but um, we took the children to U- the UK and mainland Europe. Um, my family, my father's family are from Milan, so we went and visited them. Um, and I just noticed on my way around um, this talk of a brain drain, which surprised me, not so much in Europe and Italy, which we know has always suffered this kind of thing. I mean, Italian immigrants are well known for going all over the world. Um, and also it's a, it's an economy in decline and a population base in decline. But in Britain, it was really top of mind. It was a lot on the BBC and so forth about how the NHS, well, it, it was primarily centred on the NHS, that workers are just you know, leaving that service um, hand over fist because it's not paid very well, they're burnt out. The country handled COVID poorly. Um, and so there's that, but it, it goes wider than that. I mean, the British, as you know yourself, um, they're suffering incredibly high inflation, their economy is in decline. Um, so they are also struggling with the same issues that New Zealand struggles with, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And in New Zealand, we're hearing all the time that we've got a brain drain. So, you know, if we've got a brain drain, they've got a brain drain. Where are people going? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, if you read about it, every country is complaining about a brain drain. Almost every single country, including America, um, including Canada, which is, you know, one of the most popular destinations for migrants in the world. What's happening, I think, in the so-called developed world is that people just aren't having children. And um, so we're all, and people in the developing world are coming to these countries, creating a brain drain in their own countries, but there's not enough of those kind of people. Um, as we all know, immigration is quite a contentious topic, so it's being controlled or otherwise sort of distorted. Um, but there is this global workforce of people that everyone wants because they want taxpayers. We have an ageing population, we're not having enough babies, we're having fewer and fewer people pay for these older people, and that's a problem being suffered all over the world, including in New Zealand. So uh, we're all competing for the same people. Should we look more into our own backyard, you know, upskilling or, or paying for a university education for the skills shortages that we need, nurses and doctors, that sort of thing? Um, I definitely think that's part of it. And I think National has to be commended to a degree for coming out this week um, with some ideas about retaining and attracting nurses. Um, they're on the right track. But we're never going to, I don't think, fill the shortages domestically, internally, when it's just not possible. Um, and also the the solutions are much more complex than just a few. And of course it's election period so they're, they're coming out with these lines. But a lot more thought has to go into it. Um, it's it's what McKinsey have found, they've done a, a, they did a report on nursing in Australia where they're suffering a retention problem as well of their nurses. And what nurses want is a supportive workplace, good colleagues, they want a bit of autonomy, flexible kind of work to the degree it's possible. These things, you know, pay is still incredibly important, but these things um, are things that all countries can do if they put a bit of thought into it. And I think New Zealand can do that too. I'd like to see a bit more detail around nationals' ideas and more from Labour about what they would um, like to do to ensure these people retain New Zealand as a top destination to come and work. 
So to arrest the brain drain from New Zealand, you think they should take a more holistic view of yes. how they treat workers rather than just offer the highest pay, which they can't do. Which they can't do. Um, I mean, it's easy to say it's much harder to do, obviously, and I'm sure people are thinking about that. But the problem is, of course, that nursing is an ageing population and people are not just leaving to go overseas to nurse, they're leaving the, the profession because it's just so exhausting. So some of the ideas McKinsey put forward for example, include um, a workforce to support nurses to allow them not to have to do the mundane, the more mundane tasks. Of course, then there's there's the issue of who's going to do that job, but um, and you know the, it sets up an, an ongoing cycle. But I think there's just more thought needed. We can attract this free flowing workforce um, with the right conditions and the right um, intentions. We can't. We haven't got the biggest pay packet, as you say, but um, we can do it. And I'd like to see them try. Dita, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. To host or not host the Commonwealth Games? That is the question Martin Devlin asks in this week's Playing the Ball. Martin, the idea of hosting major global sporting events always feels a little bit romantic, but does New Zealand's bid for the 2034 Games stack up? Yeah, look, I, I divide it into, into two kind of sides. It's either a fiscal equation or it's a feel-good equation. Mm. And I think with this particular event, there is no justification at all on the fiscal side of it for wanting to stage it, trying to stage it, or staging it. So in the end, as I've uh, written about, it comes to me down to the feel-good side of that ledger or balance sheet, if, if you wish, um, unless, of course, and this is the one caveat I'll put on that argument, is if the investment in infrastructure that would have to happen to be able to host these games means that we're left as a country with a whole lot of things that we wish we had mm. and that those projects, capital projects, would actually be uh, not only fully funded, but they would be finished you know, in time for that. And then you know, future generations could enjoy the fruits of. And by those, Hamish, obviously, I mean things like light rail and before you start guffawing about that um another harbour crossing um a motorway that goes from the top of the country to the bottom and so forth and so on yeah so has there been any costs bandied about it's, it must be in the billions to host these sorts of games yeah look uh, initial estimates and, and and again i mean you know people i don't know where people pluck these figures from um it's not but, a perfect you know, they, science is it yeah it's an inexact science 1.6 billion euros to host the Birmingham Games last year. Um, yep. Figures being spoken about already are at least that here. So you're probably looking between one and two billion dollars. But, you know, obviously with inflation adjusted to that, um, you know, when you're talking about construction, I mean, we all know that whatever costs, I mean, just, you know, ask anyone that's building a house or doing anything like that at the moment. I mean, what do you do? You have an, an estimated cost and then you normally double that and add something to it. So, you know, you are talking in the billions here. Mm. Maybe we return to, to the case for the, the good stuff. I mean, it is sort of generally accepted, I think, that hosting these sorts of events, sport can be uplifting, right? It, it, it would be a yeah, positive. Look, go back to how you felt last year about the Commonwealth Games. And I don't know about you, but I spent quite a bit of time watching that. And I love seeing New Zealanders compete at the highest levels. I know that the Commonwealth Games in terms of World Championships and Olympics aren't exactly there. But just seeing... Kiwi athletes striving to be the best that they can be, and just the feel good factor that provides, the nationalism that it provides. Um, that to me is 
you know, part of the reason that this was floated by Grant Robertson, um, you know, you get um, so much doom and gloom in the economic news. You know, you put that out there and, and straight away you kind of start feeling a little bit better, don't you? Because it's like, oh, there goes the national anthem, there goes the flag, and, mm. and we're going to celebrate, you know, some extraordinary Kiwis doing wonderful things, uh, you know, of, of, of a sporting bent. Um, but, you know, two weeks of that, you know, you balance that out against, as I say, in what we were talking about, the costs of billions of dollars. And, you know, does the Kiwi taxpayer, you know, really think that that's a, a good return on investment, a couple of weeks of flag flying, you know, for the fact that we're going to be so much more in debt? I mean, I guess the the economic doom and gloom sort of goes both ways, isn't it? Because, yes, you could say this is a good distraction, this is a, a good way to sort of get away from that. But equally, the timing did feel sort of weird, I thought, in terms of we've got so many issues and so much other stuff that surely we'd want to prioritise in terms of spending. And yet now we're floating this idea of this multi-billion dollar event. Yeah, look, it's 12 years away as well. I mean, so yeah. know, that's even adds to the bizarreness of it. It's kind of like, I mean, who knows what we're going to be doing in 12 years, what our country looks like in 12 years, what we can afford in 12 years. You know, it's kind of, I, I looked in amusement as well as when, um, you know, the Prime Minister revealed, you know, sort of did this big tax announcement during the week of what the super rich pay or what they don't pay. And then it's been very quick, you know, just 24 hours after that. So, oh, we're not going to do a capital gains tax. We're not going to do a capital gains tax because obviously the electorate would probably react really badly to that. So, yeah, I think, you know, these kind of things are put out there because it's, you know, either a slow news day or it makes good news and makes, you know, people feel good about it, doesn't it? But, you know, when you actually mention what you've just mentioned and you're talking about a health system that's falling apart, you're talking about roads. I mean, at the moment, we can't even fill potholes, let alone actually think about what we're seriously going to put light rail in. The previous Prime Minister promised that six years ago. I mean, every time I say light rail, I feel like bursting out laughing because that was meant to be finished this year. Um, you know, I recently went off to the airport to catch a plane, and every time I do, I always think, you know, you know, the hassle and struggle and traffic and nightmare that, you know, going in and out of Auckland Airport, I mean, how good would it be just to jump on a tube or a rail mm, and be able to do yeah. it like that? But yeah. it's not going to happen. We know that. I mean, we know it's never going to happen in New Zealand, you know. So, high in the sky stuff for me, you know, these kind of announcements. I look, I'm, you know, I wish I felt, you know, I mean, I, I kind of sit there and think, God, you're a negative Nelly, do you? You know, do you need to actually sort of get a bit of happy in your life? And the happy is watching the athletes perform and all of that. But, you know, realistically, I, you know, I'm, I hear figures like we've got, you know, 50,000 kids aren't going to school and 10,000 of them are truant, you know. And I mean, I, I, you know, I fear for the cost of New Zealand. What's going to happen to those kids who are truant? Are they all going to be Ram Raiders in three years' time or something? I mean, you know, what I'm just saying is to paint a picture that says surely reality says we've got better things to spend money on than just a Commonwealth Games. Having said that, mate, look, you don't have it all in one city anymore, you know, like, you know, Auckland in 50, Christchurch in 74, Auckland again in 1990. We saw in England that it was spread all around the country. And that's both good and bad, because I think, you know, for these kind of events, and I've been very fortunate to go and cover the, these and the work that I do, you know, part of the joy and the attraction of it is that Olympic Village or Commonwealth Village or that this whole city is just enveloped in it for that particular period of time. The idea that you're doing cycling up here and then in the South Island, this takes place in 100k away, is that it's just all kind of just, it feels like there's probably six or seven great sporting events going on at the same time as opposed to being one collective, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But you're going to call it? It's not going to come? Won't be, we won't be singing? Not, look, yeah, I just can't see it realistically happening. I think that what we'll see, depending on who the government is, is that they'll keep floating this for the next few years whenever they need a bit of good news or a, or a good bit of cheer. Because we all know that politicians love 
you know, getting their photos taken with athletes, don't they? And this goes back, you know, years and years and years. Yeah. I mean, you know, and Helen Clark, good on her, was part of the bid that got us to 2011 Rugby World Cup. John Key couldn't stop himself from jumping into that dressing room for the All Blacks every chance that he possibly get. And, you know, the idea of, you know, at New Zealand, are, you know, doing well on the world stage, we, you know, all the politicians want to jump all over that. So there's that aspect to it, which is why it'll keep coming up. But, mate, realistically, I just, I, I can't see us investing that kind of money that we need in this unless as i said it means that we end up with all this infrastructure famous just one quick example before i go the sydney 2000 games uh that that's what they did i mean and now when you you fly into sydney you can actually catch the train into town mm. um also the train out west they you know they redid all their public transport and stuff like that and so they're reaping the benefits of that so if it meant that I'd probably go, yeah, tick, but I just can't see any of that happening. So, no, I, I, I just don't realistically think we're going to get these games in 2034, and it's probably a good thing. Martin, thanks very much for your time. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to this week's edition of Te Ohanga Māori column, focusing on the Māori economy and Māori businesses. Joining me today from Tūranganui Akiwa, Gisborne, is our columnist Barry Suter. Tēnākwe, Barry. Tēnākwe, tēnākoutou, whakarongo mai nei. So this week you've written about the discrepancy between the level of the Māori population and their assets' contribution to overall GDP. What are some of the factors at play here? Yeah, I think um, in business what you, you what you do is you measure, you know, the position that you're in. You measure your starting point, um, and then you set your goal about where you want to be and where you want to go as a company, an entity, an uh, organisation. Um, and then you need to understand uh, all of the parameters, uh, sorry, all of the influences that uh, uh, impinge upon your ability to migrate from that starting point to that uh, so-called conclusion in whatever period of time. So, um it's a fascinating uh, mind trip, really, is what I was going through uh, in the piece at the moment. And that was to ask ourselves the question, um, uh, what is our our proportion, uh, con- proportional contribution as Māori to, to the economy? And, of course, it's actually very challenging and, and that sort of thing, but... Uh, that was the, the, the purpose of actually asking the question in that way. It, you know, some some punters would probably um, challenge me on why I would even raise it, um, other than it actually just points out there are some major discrepancies. And so my view of the world is unless you put numbers on these things, um, just saying something's bad mm. is not measurable. Um, so... You know, having uh, figures like that allows us to say, "Well, okay, let's 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 it's 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 nowhere but up from here." Uh, we should, you know, let's let's halt the decline. Let's first of all stop um, uh, those things that um, erode uh, Maori contribution, Maori ability to be able to contribute to the country. Yeah. Yeah, of course, it is difficult to measure. Um, you know, we're just taking the Māori asset base there, whereas Māori contribute to the economy in many different ways. And then you've got the GDP as well um, as sort of an imperfect measure. But as you say, it's it's a good starting point for a discussion on, I suppose, solutions or or, or um, you know policies that can be implemented to to move 
that number higher. So um, what are some of the things you're suggesting? Uh, well, there are a range of things that are put into the actual piece itself, but um, the interesting thing is, and so there are a whole lot of predictable things that you can do around um, inspiration and uh, uh, support and development for enterprise. Um, but I think the interesting, so if, you, so if you take it from a business point of view and you just treat the population as a company, um, then uh, what you do is you look at the opportunity and, and the opportunity is, okay, what's the, uh, what's the things that can move the dial that require less um, energy measured in terms of input and assets and those sort of things that could move the dial uh, quicker. And really what it comes, really what the insight comes back to is that um, that's probably the tech sector. Um, and I know it's easy to say, but, and, and tough to actually, actually execute, but uh, if you think about the traditional industries like uh, the primary sector, they're very large asset-based uh, industries, but they're very hard to turn around. They're very hard to um, uh, to expand uh, in terms of being able to create the kind of meaningful and benef beneficial jobs um, that we would want to all aspire to. I mean, right now in New Zealand, we've got a massive systemic problem around labour force because nobody wants to do the labour jobs. You know, I'm in, I live here in Gisborne and um, I can swear uh, every day I see New Caledonians, at least that's the ethnicity I think they are, um, you know, who are the labourers who have come in seasonally to, to uh, harvest the fruit that's um, uh, on the trees around Gisborne here. Now, um, we have to do that because New Zealanders don't want to pick their fruit. So just telling me that um, we just create more uh, manual labour jobs like that as the solution to uh, our employment and all that sort of thing just doesn't make sense because it hasn't been working. Uh, we can't even get our own people to work in hospo and uh, in the hospitality industry. So I think the opportunity, given that tech is the second largest export earner and likely to become the top earner in time, is for, it really comes down to a few things, but it comes down to leadership by entrepreneurs because government can never lead this stuff. Government can never um, take the risk on behalf of, of the entrepreneurs who are the interface between customers and production. And so I think the opportunity from Māori economy point of view is, is really to, to come up with a single coherent um, plan shared across the nation around how to invest in creating the tech economy that uh, can really be our, our way forward. Uh, you look at countries like um, um, you know, Switzerland created an entire economy around banking, um, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, that's because they, you know, they had a single systemic plan and they put all their resources into into um, building that proposition. You have a look at uh, Israel. Israel did the same thing around um, ag tech um, and and other forms of tech, albeit artificially generated by their military investment, 
Um, but you look at other countries um, like uh, um, the Hort sector in California, et cetera. So the, it's quite possible to actually turn a country and a region around and even an ethnicity, but it just it takes takes some leadership and some will, uh, which I I really don't see uh, happening in our in our region and, and in our country. Mm. Yeah, well, you say you know entrepreneurs need to lead the way, and it's not it can't be all up to government, but there is um, obviously a, a partnership aspect with government and uh, encouraging that. And obviously, in an election year, do you feel like there are certain things the government could be doing better to help develop that? Well, your problem, your problem fundamentally is the political uh, timescale. So you know the, um, it's it's quite challenging. So, so the irony is over in the uh, primary sector, it is quite understood, quite well understood there that the the cycles of uh, time it takes to develop some of those industries are very very long ones, um, and so therefore. Um, if you have one, if you have a particular political persuasion and power in one three-year period, um, it's unlikely that that strategy gets wholesale change for a primary sector. For instance, you think about forestry; it's got you know thirty-year rotations. Well, people are not going to change their plan, um, you know, if the government goes in and out because the trees are still have to grow through to their thirty-year sort of rotation. But um, I think a combination of things. One is that there just are no tech entrepreneurs in government uh, or experienced tech entrepreneurs who have scaled companies offshore. They're not in government for a very good reason because they're busy mm. being successful yeah. um, and and leading in that fashion. Uh, but we still don't have enough of them. And if we as a country don't actually buy into the idea of encouraging them, uh, then we're never going to grow them. Um, and that's an aspiration. Entrepreneurs aren't uh, necessarily um, born, but they evolve, you know, over time. And you know, some of those um, inversion points at where a young child just goes, "I'm going to be this. I'm going to do that," or "I'm going to be belligerent and I'm not going to listen to what everybody is telling me, and I'm going to go and do my own thing," and creates a whole new product that spawns a new industry and that sort of thing. What are those inversion points? Um, they're not always super clear. And often they can be a negative experience. Mm-hmm. So they can be a teacher at school telling you you're not worth anything. So you you rebel and you go out and start a company. I mean, all the successful entrepreneurs I know were never the top of their class at school. True, yeah. But thanks very much for your column this week, Barry. No worries. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. In this week's column, Duncan Garner reckons the John Key, Helen Clark style of politics are the order of the day. Tell us more, Duncan. Well, I think, um, uh, g'day, I, I think um, Chris Hipkins has, uh, he's a student of politics, right? And he was he, he got to Parliament in 2008, right when John Key was at his ascendancy into the Prime Minister's role, and right at the end of Clark. He's an observer and a student of both Clark and Key. Look at his politics. I think he's out King Luxon. 
I mean, Chris Luxon wants to be the new John Key, but I think Chris Hipkins is is doing that. You know, that sort of, you know, caring, um, caring politician who is not going to scare you. Uh, he's going to sit and straddle the middle, so no one's offended by it. I, I think, I think Hipkins is doing um, a better job at being a national party leader than, than perhaps Luxon is. I, I, if they didn't think it was game on, it's, it's game on now. So what way in particular do you think that Hipkins is copying these mannerisms of Key and also of Clark? Because it's, it's about not being offensive. It's, it's about um, any sort of devilish ideas that you hold, you hide. Um, and then you straddle the middle because this is where MMP elections are won and lost. They are, they are they're won by finding new votes uh, um, from swinging voters because most voters have decided, right? So there's this group of, say, 10, 15% in the middle. That's who you have to get. So you get them by coming across as reasonable, by coming across as decent, by coming across as not scary, and by perhaps offering something. What's Luxon offering? Um, for the for an average wage earner in New Zealand, it's um, a tax threshold switch of $13. $13 a week. Now, if you're an overseas nurse, you'll get a $10,000 relocation allowance. You're better off being a Filipino coming from the Philippines into New Zealand as a nurse than you are as an average wage worker in New Zealand under under, under Luxon. Uh, so this is this is about what National can offer. And at the moment, Hipkins is getting rid of all the bad things that um, that they were stood for and that Jacinda was known for. And he's, he's neutralising it, you see. And, and I, I think he's been quite effective. Are you surprised by how well Hipkins is performing? Because this wasn't meant to be at the start of the year. Everyone thought that National was going to be taking up the election. To, to, to be honest, I, I am. And, and you know, I got to know Chris Hipkins in Wellington as a political journalist and, and watched his rise and rise. And I thought he was, a, 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 you know, a safe a safe pair of competent hands and, and quite a good communicator. Uh, and if, if you look at his policy work and, and, his, and his portfolio areas from before, he's not that startling. A lot of stuff is, is still hanging around as a problem. But as Prime Minister, he, he seems to have a really good grasp of it. And he, he's, he's, I'm surprised. I'm surprised at how he's come across. I always thought he was, you know, a boy doing a man's job. I, I don't want this to sound sexist or anything, but, you know, I always thought he was, he, he seemed too young for it. He wasn't quite ready. But I think he's grown into the role. And, and there's a number of um, swinging um, national voters that, that, that I'm aware of who are saying, I'm looking at this guy now. Now, now, now. This is a problem for Luxon because they're relying on you know the whole John Key mantra of you know ambitious for New Zealand. We'll get there. Act national. We'll get there. They'll get fifty percent. I'm not so sure they can count on that. Not when and Hipkins is trying to spanner in the works. Mm-hmm. Now, tax. What changes there might be or not seems to be shaping up as quite a big election issue after mm. last week. What do you think of National's new announced tax threshold? Well. I think they're unremarkable. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I think they could, I think they're going to have to do more. National says they're the party of the tax cuts, right? National says they're the party of low tax. If you keep more more money, the more money you earn, the more you keep, that sort of thing. I don't think it's that convincing. How many how many tax cuts has National given in the last 20 years? Maybe two, if if you're lucky. They're, they're big on rhetoric. They talk, they talk the heat into this, into this thing, but it doesn't actually... Deliver now, Labour. I, I'm wondering if they'll come in and, and do something on tax. You know, they Chris Hipkins is talking about moving the tax thresholds. That's that's pinching going in and being national light. He'll do it as well. They're, they're the incumbents. They sit in office. They could do this and they could do this in the budget in a few weeks' time. They could move the tax thresholds and 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 and, and push it through under urgency, and it could take effect immediately. They could take the sting out of Nationals. Um, tax policy by announcing it themselves. Why wait for Chris Luxon's government when you could do it? You could do it in 
three weeks' time. Under urgency in 24 hours. I know what I'd do if I was Hipkins. What would you do? I'd do that. I'd say, yeah, great idea. I'll do it now. I'm in government. Why, why wait for this guy? And then you take away, you take away the one thing that they've got that, that's concrete. I mean, their health policy around nurses is good, but I mean, there's an argument over whether they're telling the truth or not. But um, you know, I think it's hard to argue that that's a bad policy when you're paying off nurses' student loans if they're bonded. But this is all this is all from the John Key playbook: bonding and Helen Clark, bonding nurses, bonding doctors. Um, you know, it's all it's all it's the same. It's moving thresholds. It's all the same. There doesn't appear to be any um, big new um, policy from either party. Uh, to be honest, Hopkins has done the right thing by getting rid of the 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 you know that tax report that David Parker did by saying no new taxes uh, is very smart. And it clears the way. It's the sort of thing key did. You know, there'll be no, there'll be no um, uh, changes to superannuation. It neutralises the problem. You know, for, for Labor, and he's he's done it well. Um, but again, it's it's from Key's playbook. I think Hipkins is playing is playing the key card better than Luxon's playing the key card. If you know what I mean. Uh, there's got to be some bribes coming shortly. With you know the bribeometer, where, where, where is it? How long will it take before one of these parties breaks from this sort of phony war and goes big? You know. So we've still got a few months to go. It hasn't really quite ramped up yet. So you're no. expecting a few election bribes to come. Oh, I, I, well, I, I think, you know, they, they have these round of conferences as well. Now, the forced to, Helen Clark used to always say, we've got to feed the chickens. And the chickens, of course, are the chooks, are the, are the journalism, are the journalists. So you have to feed them every weekend. You've got all these party conferences. You have to have you have to roll out policy. So next, there'll probably be an education policy from National. But they're going to have to get to tax at some point. On the website, they talk about the cost of living policy. What is it? I look at National's website, I look at the cost of living. They have they have the first section, cost of living. There's nothing in there that says to working New Zealand families, here's the here's the relief you're going to get. It's sort of big picture stuff. It's gotta be it's gotta be specific so New Zealanders understand it, otherwise they won't vote for you. Duncan, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome, no props. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.